Hey, welcome to Freya Warriors Native because Freya Warriors are native. We're cross streaming from freeconferencecall.com to talkshoes.com. May God bless you. We come to give honor and praise to the Most High God. We're seeing another Sunday. We're here to pray for each other, pray for the nation, pray for targeted individuals in particular. People that this uh, sick program has. is basically launching an attack. I bind and rebuke every attack on the body. Eugenics, this thing to make people sick so that a demon from the pit of hell could try to have authority. Satan, we bind you and we rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And this, this is what we come together to pray, particularly to bind, rebuke, and pray for the dismantling of all eugenic programs whether it be electronic torture, induced cancer, induced blood clots, induced circulatory problems, induced stroke, induced killings, whatever the eugenesis of plant planting, plotting, we plead the blood of Jesus on it. And we thank you, God, that we have a measure to go against these type of ritualistic, satanic uh, uh, plots of Satan that could never happen without them involving in uh, joining in, in spiritual uh, wickedness. And we just thank you, God, that we don't have to go and cut the, the foot of the cat and the sheep and the goat and the, the toenail and all kind of stuff. We come together as prayer warriors and stand on the blood of Jesus Christ. If you never knew the blood was real, you know it's real now. When you look at the magnitude of evil in this world, this could not happen just by happenstance. Okay, there's somebody using spiritual forces to get this much power. And you can disable public protection offices. You can set up a system not to help people. You can set up a system with doctors, dentists, everybody involved, you know, um, large magnitudes. I'm not going to say everybody involved. Large magnitudes of people work to harm, to to induce healthy people into sickness. So a group of eugenicists can feel confident because they're, they're jealous of God giving people with God given talent. That is a big program. But um, we're gonna we come together and we our topic tonight is the power of prayer. And we'll be looking at some healing verses for all those that are being assaulted through electronic weapons. We we just have to bind and rebuke and ask for God to put a shield over us. And we thank God we have that countermeasure. We're going to open up with Mother. Mother will give us an opening prayer, and then we'll move into other praying people. Lord, we thank you for another precious day that you have given us, Lord, and pray one for another. And all those that we pray, we continue praying in Jesus' name. We glorify you. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the message praise. Pray, pray, pray. So we're going to pray right now. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Mama. Uh, Amy, I know you've been here a while. You want to go on, go on and pray a little bit, Amy? Amy. 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 20 minutes ago. 
Amy, Miss Anderson, Miss Anderson, calling Miss Anderson. Okay. We just have to um uh, Nancy, you wanna do the devotional and, and go into prayer? Okay. Would you like me to um would you like me to do the devotional now? Yes, y'all. Okay. Um let me let me grab it, please. Just a second. All right. Okay, today is Sunday, um, March 25th, and it's the devotion, devotional text from Psalms 107.2, Let the Redeemed of the Lord Say So. The subheading is Shouting from the Housetop. No matter how badly you have failed, God will give you another chance. After Jonah Jonah disobeyed God, spent three days in the belly of a whale, and and then when the good hold on, hold on, did somebody have background? In the background, yeah, there's some, someone needs to mute their phone. Yeah, somebody's phone is definitely. Um, yeah, I, I think every, I think. It's probably best for everybody to mute their phone unless they're speaking. You know what I mean? To to just cut down. You know, it looks like I have Amy on my other line and maybe the 516, but I think she muted. Go ahead. Go ahead. You want me to go ahead and start? Can you hear me? I can hear you, Mary. Muted. Now, can can the talk shoe line hear me? Can I can anyone on talk shoe hear me? This is Nancy. I can hear you. Oh, I needed the talk shoe line. Testing, testing on talk shoe. Can anyone hear me on talk shoe? I can hear you. No. No. Oh my God. I can't read that. Unmuted. Okay. All right, I have to unmute that. But go ahead. We'll just make do. Go ahead. Nance? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Let's see how this goes. Okay. Um, again, the subheading is shouted from the housetops. No matter how badly you have failed, God will give you another chance. After Jonah had disobeyed, God had disobeyed God. He spent three days in the belly of a well and been regurgitated on the shore of Nineveh. The Bible says the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. King David's sins were front-page tabloid material, yet God restored him. And he wrote, he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the the miry day, I'm sorry, miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my heart, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. When God restores you, it doesn't matter who's fighting against you. When he raises you up, no one can keep you down. If God has has redeemed you, say so. Nobody else can tell your story. Nobody else knows what God has done for you. Nobody else knows how far you've come. Nobody else knows what you've been through, but you do. 
you know it it was only by God's grace that you survived. So don't allow a devil to steal your testimony. It may have taken you longer than everybody else, but God has given you the victory. The devil would love to silence you. Why? Because you tell people what God has done for you. Someone else will, someone, if you tell people what God has done for you, someone else will be set free. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. So the word for you today is shout it from the housetops. Father, in the name of Jesus, right now, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for being God. Thank you, Father, that your uh, that this um, devotional is encouraging us, Father, to shout it from the rooftops, Lord, because we want to bless people, Father, because you blessed us, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Help us to remember that, Father. Help us to remember that the redeemed of the Lord, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Thank you. We lift our hands to you, Father, right now, just thanking you so much for being God. Thanking you, Father, just for the just the awesome privilege and opportunity to come before you and to cry out to you, Father. Thank you, Lord God, for we know that thou art almighty and thou art great, Father. Help us, Father, to always remember, Lord, to share our testimony, to share our goodness about you, Father, and not be downtrodden. Father, we want to be the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. Help us to remember, Father, the many ways that you've blessed our lives, Father, the awesome things that you've done in our lives, Father. And help us, Father, to always remember to be mindful to share that testimony with people, Father, so that their lives can be blessed, Lord. Thank you, Father God, that we have your word and we can stand on your word, Father, not just to redeem it, Father, and to make us feel good about who we are, Father, but so that we can open our mouths and speak your word, Father, and and, uh, testify of your goodness, Father, so that others' lives will be blessed, Father. No matter what man does, Father, to us, Lord, we know that there is none greater than you, Lord. And when you bless our lives, Father, we're blessed, Father, in the name of Jesus. Help us, Father, to remember that and to stand on that, Father, and to cast down anything that tries to raise itself against the, the word of God, against your goodness, Father, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we're redeemed, and we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're redeemed by Jesus Christ. We're redeemed by the word, Father, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we're the head and not the tail. We're above and not beneath, Father. Thank you, Father, that greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. We thank you for that, Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord. We won't focus on a negative, Father, but we'll focus on the positive. We focus on what you have done in our lives, Father, and what you continue to do in our lives, Lord. We love you so much, Father, and help us, Father, to just keep our eyes focused on you, Lord. Like Job, Father, although Job suffered, suffered, suffered mightily, he said, Yet I will trust him. Father, thank you so much for your word and for your love, Father, in the name of Jesus. We love you so much, Father. We thank you for all that you've done, Father, and we trust you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 That was beautiful. Thank you. I'm on the board. Thank you. All right. I'll come. Anybody wants to pray? 
Go ahead. I thought that was somebody. God, we just thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you, God, for being an awesome God. We thank you, God, for being the God of the impossible. We thank you, God, when, when all doors look shut, that you can open doors that no other man can, can open. We thank you, God, that the favor of God means more to one's life than any degree, than any job, than any income. God's favor will keep you in the land of the living. And when the devil comes to take you out, he can't. And we thank you, God. We thank you, God, for the hedge of protection that comes with being under your will. We thank you, God, that we may not understand the targeted individual program, God. But, God, we know that you're all sovereign and you're in control of everything. If you didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't have happened. And if it wasn't for that program, we wouldn't be here praying right now. So, God, what the devil meant for bad, you have used again for good. And we give you all the praise and the honor, Heavenly Father, for that. We thank you for praying people. We thank you, God, for each and every praying person on this line. And we ask you, God, that they be blessed and that their bloodlines be blessed. And every attack from Satan be blocked, be covered. Be that they're covered, that there's a hedge of protection on them, Heavenly Father. And we ask you, God, that every ritual these demons have committed to have the power on this earth and to do the things they've done, we can stand and plead the blood of Jesus to cut it through. The blood, blood, the blood. We stand on the blood of Jesus in the name of Jesus, Heavenly Father, because in spiritual warfare, you cannot fight on the earthly realm. And, God, we thank you. We don't have to go cut, like I said, cat's foot, toenail, all kinds of stuff. We can say, Heavenly Father, we believe Jesus to break every ritual done for earthly power, for demons to usurp authority on this earth that was rooted and embedded in ritualistic practices, whether it was sacrificing babies, humans, Whatever type of offering was done for them to get this worldly power, we plead the blood against it in the name of Jesus. We plead the blood against eugenics. We plead the blood against taking out doctors and lawyers that believe in justice and doing right. We plead the blood of Jesus on awareness across this earth. We plead the blood of Jesus that people of God will come together and wake up and yank these demons out of these positions. We plead the blood of Jesus that every demon in the Senate, in the legislative branch, in the executive branch, in the judicial branch will be yanked out. In the name of Jesus, we plead the blood, the blood, the blood. We can't do this without you, Heavenly Father. We can't do this on our own. We're living through it. We see people trying to do it, can't do it. Because we were created by a boss. We were created by a creator of the most high God, this God above all gods, the sovereign God. And we thank you, God, for everything that comes with the sovereign God. We thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit that has been sent here to direct and guide us. And we thank you, God, for the sacrificial offering of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we give you praise. We give you glory. We thank you, God, for you being God. We thank you, God, for biblical teaching. We thank you, God, for the standing of the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. We thank you, God, for every scripture that has been left here to give us strength, to give us a faith. We thank you, God, for everything, the whole of faith, our Hebrews chapter, that tells us that everything 
is in control by God, that faith is the victory that overcomes the world, and without faith it is impossible to please God. If you are T.I., just remember, without faith it is impossible to make it through this. It's impossible to please your creator. And we stand on every verse that tells us such. We stand on 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, but for we walk by faith, not by sight. Ephesians 6, 16, above all, Take your faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery dust of the wicked. What does that mean? While the devil is targeting you, trying to turn your life upside down. You got to know that this too shall pass, that this will not last forever, that you serve a mighty God, that sometimes it's a test of your faith. And that God will turn things around according to his time and his will. And we thank you. We thank you, God, for healing faith. Jesus turned in Matthew 9:22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. In Matthew 15, 28, then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire, and her will was healed instantly. Many of these new religions, they take away the faith. They want you to put your faith in some other start doubting your your God and his capabilities and, and all the powers and the angels and all his that all that he has and access to to change things. You better stand on your faith. Don't Know that God can turn things around. In Matthew 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Sometimes it's nothing but our faith. And that's why when they get people in the hospital, that's a main thing. If you have a loved one that you've seen in the hospital, they do everything to beat that person down, to take their faith away. Everything. I, they tortured my sister so bad. They put her on the sheets. It was just horrific. And I said, they, they, want, they because they want the person to participate in the demise. Mm. Make a decision. I will walk by faith. And we thank you, God, and we thank you, God, for this week that we have coming before us. And we ask you, God, to lead us, direct us, send the Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, to talk to us, cover us with a hedge of protection, Heavenly Father, cover our children and our children's children and our nieces, nephews, our loved ones, our bloodline, our elder. Bless our elders, Heavenly Father, from head to toe. I call my mother blessed. I call Amy's mother blessed, Anne's mother blessed. I call everyone on this line's mother blessed. I call those that are not with us blessed and, and resting with the most high God. And I thank you, God, for you giving them the gift of longevity, those that are here, that you extend the gift of longevity to those of us that are here for our children or our nieces and nephews, Heavenly Father. Most importantly, God, I appeal to you. In the name of Jesus, 
that you don't want that demon take out not one of us before our time, before we complete the assignment that you have us complete and don't let us go out through any eugenic plan. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, that the that demon spirit of eugenics will not have no impact on praying people and knowledgeable people, Heavenly Father. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Who else um, didn't pray yet? Let's see. Okay, we didn't get um we didn't get a um Camille yet, but okay. But I'm taking. I'm taping. Okay, so we'll move right in. We're looking at. We're looking at the power of prayer. Okay, the power of prayer. It is quite obvious that God the Father has the full divine power to fully heal us of any disease or sickness that could strike the body. So how do you get God to release his healing power directly to you to either heal yourself or someone else you may be praying for? By direct prayer to God the Father. And sometimes that prayer has to be a prevailing prayer, which means that you keep praying to God until you get the healing to fully manifest unto the affected part of the body that will need the healing. There are many different types of prayer prayer strategies that you can take with the Lord in your own personal prayers to him. In this particular reading, I will be discussing some of these different types of prayer strategies. But for the sake of this article, I will give some information, some specific verses that are telling us that sometimes we have to pray direct to God the Father for full healing to manifest. The first three verses are specifically telling us to pray to God when we're sick and need a healing. Number one, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray, James 5, 13. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and and if he has committed sin, will be James 5.14. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went to him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him, Acts 28.8. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James 5.16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. Acts and it will be given to you on Acts and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you, Matthew 7.7. 7. Yet you do not have because you do not ask, James 4.2. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, Isaiah 64, 7. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one, Ezekiel 22, 30. 
He saw that there was no man and wondered there wondered was there there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, Isaiah fifty nine sixteen. Therefore he said that he would destroy them and had not. Moses, his chosen one, stood before him on the bench on the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Psalms one oh six twenty three. Notice the last four verses are showing us that God is actually looking for intercessors, those who are willing to stand in the gap for other people who are needing God's help. And in some of these situations, these people have become sick and are needing a physical healing from the Lord. As an intercessor, you can actually stand in the gap for these people and pray to God for their healing. I will doing a much more um I will be doing a much more uh detailed reading on the power of intercessory prayer later and how powerful of a weapon it is. It really is in the hands of someone who knows how to do this with God the Father. Many major miracles can be brought down from heaven with this kind of prevailing intercessory prayer. Okay. <clears throat> All right, let's see I think the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that God the Father really does want to heal many of the many of the people many of the times if he is properly approached in your prayers. Excuse me. However, there's one more big debate going on in the body of Christ right now on the subject of divine healing. Many are teaching that it is the will of God that you be healed every single time that you pray and ask for one, and that if you are not healed, then there is something wrong with you. Either your faith was not operating at a high enough level, or you have some kind of bad sin that you may be living in. Granted, there are times that God may want your faith operating at a higher level than where you may be at right now. If that is the case, then he may want you to get more into the word to do all the verses to teach on healing. Before he will move into divine healing to heal you, right, he may want you to know that before he heals you. You also could have some type of sin as discussed above that, that needs to be taken care of before he will move in to heal you. But what about the person who is already operating at a very high level of faith and they have clearly, fairly clean slate with God with no sins that really need to be confessed and forgiven? How do you explain it when they are doing everything right in the Lord and then all of a sudden they need physical healing for their own self, and God does not heal them. How do you explain this kind of scenario with the way all of the above scripture verses are worded? This is just my humble opinion, says this author. I believe that God is still sovereign in all of his ways to include when he will manifest the gift of healing on someone. The Bible says that we can only know in part while living down here on earth. Sometimes God will tell us why he does what he does, and other times he will not. 
if God makes a personal decision not to heal someone when they are in when they are properly approaching him in prayer for the healing, then I believe there's always a specific reason as to why he is choosing not to do this at that time. Sometimes he will tell us what the reason may be, and other times he will not. If he chooses not to tell us, then we have full faith and belief that he is a sovereign God and that he must have a very good reason for not wanting to heal that particular situation. Um, there could be a multitude of reasons why God may choose to even delay, if not heal someone. Yeah. Uh, the article gave several uh, articles that uh, he recommends reading. Uh, a woman had been praying for her son's healing. He was only 10 years old, and he came down with an incurable disease and was only given a short amount of time to live, God kept telling her that he did not want to heal him, and that, was she, and that she was to let the matter go. That's very hard. The woman who was not able for an answer and kept pressing to God that he would heal her son. Due to her continued persistence, God finally healed the woman's son. However, her testimony ended stating that she lived just long enough to watch her son get hanged as a criminal before he ended up committing when he was 41 years old. God obviously knew what his future held in store for him. He knew that he was going to end up committing this murder. God was actually showing incredible love and mercy by one take home early with the incurable disease instead of letting him live long enough to commit this horrible murder. His mother obviously could not see into the future or understand the big picture, and she thus should have never been questioning God's knowledge and wisdom on this matter in the first place, since God knew exactly what was going to happen in the boy's future, and she did not. Bottom line, God always knows best. Let his perfect will be done in all matters, which will include who he will decide to heal and who he will not. I know many people have had their minds really messed up when, for whatever reason, God chose to not heal. And another Christian comes along and starts trying to place a guilt trip on them, telling them that either their faith is not operating at a high enough level, or there must be something in their personal life that is preventing God from wanting to heal them. As I've stated above, sometimes this may be true, but other times it may not be true. If there are no blocks or hindrances in that person's life, then God is choosing not to heal for another reason. If you're not getting a healing for either yourself or someone else you may be praying for, then I would press into God and ask him why he is not moving to heal either you or the other person you may be praying for. Ask him to show you if there are any blocks or hindrances that have to be dealt with. If he comes back and tells you that there are no blocks or hindrances that have to be dealt with, but that he has chosen not to heal at this time, then trust that he has a very good reason for not wanting to move with this in his healing power and let it go at that. It could be that it may be that person's time to go home, to be with him, even if that person is still at a young age, like you already described above. Okay. 
I will end this caption with one very good verse from Scripture that is telling us that God will have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy on. I believe this is one of the verses from Scripture that is really emphasizing the sovereignty of God and that no one is going to tell him how to run his universe. But he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Not the potter have power over the clay, Romans 9, 15, 21. Okay. And that is how God is merciful. God the Father has the power to heal. Sometimes, when someone has been hit by an extreme sickness or disease, especially one that may be considered terminal, our faith levels may be severely shaken, possibly to the core. You've been just diagnosed with terminal cancer, and the doctors have now told you that you only have six more months to live. The devil is alive. Though you know God is all-powerful, the situation looks so hopeless and bleak that you now start doubting whether or not God can really deliver you out of such a dire, extreme, and hopeless situation. You are so overwhelmed by the hopelessness of the situation that you start forgetting how powerful God really is and that he does have the full supernatural power to be able to fully heal you no matter how grave the situation may appear to you in the natural world. The next three verses are telling us that nothing, nothing is too impossible for God to be able to handle. Again, these verses should be burned into the memory bank so we can have them fully loaded up into our mind and spirit if we ever are faced with what appears to be insurmountable odds. For with God, nothing will be impossible, Luke 137. But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God, Luke 18:27. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask for, according to the power that works in us, Ephesians 3:20. If you're going through something, those three verses can really make a difference. Again, for with God, nothing will be impossible, Luke 137. But he said things which are impossible with God, Luke 18, 27. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, Ephesians 3, 20. The second verse is telling us that if we can get any kind of healing from a doctor, then God himself can come to your rescue and fully heal you no matter how bad and hopeless the situation may appear to you in the natural. Remember, God the Father, remember, God the Father has the full power and full ability to accomplish anything that he will want to do. If he has the full divine supernatural power to create our entire world in six days, then I do not think he will have any problems in being able to fully heal anyone with whatever sickness or disease may have just struck their body. 
Okay. You're right. Okay. The, um, with healing, can you believe under healing? Let's take a look at one more. The sin of gluttony. That's overeating. I know this topic will be very sensitive to in Functions within their body, causing the abnormal weight gain. However, for many others, this weight gain is the result of overeating and overeating of the wrong kinds of foods. With all of the good nutritional information that is now available, we all know what bad foods do. There is also a ton of educational material that's out here to show us what good foods are and how to structure our diets accordingly to take off a lot of excess weight. However, for whatever personal reasons, many people who are overweight simply do not care they are overeating and that they are grossly overweight. God may have been striving with them, trying to get them to get their eating habits under their control. However, sooner or later, the human body can only take so much abuse, especially in the area of what we feed it, and then it will break down. A cancer could set in or anything else. There are many different kinds of sicknesses and illnesses that can strike our body. We do not properly feed it and take proper care of it. The Bible tells us that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. As such, I believe God the Father wants us taking care of our body. If we do not and we steadfastly refuse to heed to his warnings and promptings, then God may choose not to want to heal us if we end up coming down with a major sickness as a result of deliberately overeating and abusing our body over all, body over all those years. With none of us being perfect, I believe there's a certain for some of our weaknesses and character flaws. However, where we will get in major trouble with God is when we start to push the envelope too far with him and tread past those slack lines where we should not be going. I believe there's a slack line that operates in how we take care of our bodies. I am sure God is all right with a certain amount of excess body weight due to our own natural imperfections. However, where we get into trouble is when we start to go past our own individual slack lines with him. If that should happen, then God will start giving you major warning signs and signals that you're getting too far off base. If after a certain amount of time you do not heed those warnings and you keep going in the direction you're going, then God could pull back his hand of protection on you, and you can then end up coming down with a major sickness or disease. Remember, some of the verses state that if you do what's right in the sight of the Lord, then he will not put any of these diseases on you. Going against the Lord by overeating and abusing your body is not doing what is right in the Lord. And he thus could pull back his hand of protection on you in your life. I will leave you with one very interesting verse that tells us to only eat what we really need. We be filled with it and vomit. In other words, you can get physically sick by overeating. In Proverbs twenty five sixteen it says, Have you found honey? 
Eat only as much as you need. At least you will be filled with it and vomit. And, um, okay. All right, that's about it. And um, this is a 30-minute uh, thing for prayer. Oh, I wanted to read one more thing I'm reading. This is a big thing on prayer. It's um, the parable of sowing the seed. One of those parables. Give me a second. There is. Maybe they see something not about him. What happened to his outing? No, I'm always on mute. No, it's not on mute. No, not working. Let's see. Yep. All right, I don't know why that. This is not working. You know, the volume's up. Okay. All right. Can't, can't do it. All right, let me just get this one. And uh, we will do good. Amanda was a great student, an eighth learner, and okay. a great student. Yeah. Amanda saw this each time, an opportunity to take the eyes. Prayer. Yeah. Let's suppose that you're writing a really important email to a colleague. I'm getting all these. Uh, Commercials. Prayer basics. Oh, okay. It's just the pictures. I thought it was a video. Okay. The parable, we're going to end with this. The parable of the mustard seed. After the parable of the tears sown in the field of wheat, he told a short parable in which he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man planted. This is one of the... 74 calories and total score. Are you ready to do this? Jesus told a short parable. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man planted. This is one of the smallest of seeds, yet when the plant is fully grown, it is often large and tall enough for birds to rest on it, rest or sit on its shadow. By this parable, Jesus taught that though his kingdom or rule in the world might seem small and very limited in its beginnings, it would become widely extended until it included the whole earth. Another parable that Jesus gave was of a woman who took heaven who took leaven, excuse me, or yeast, and placed it in three inches of flour to make bread. The quantity of flour a woman would prepare for an ordinary towel was called three measures. The leaven consisted of a piece of dough that had been made sour by yeast. When water was mixed with, with the flour to make dough for bread, the leaven was placed in the middle of it and left until the next day. When the entire dough was raised or leavened and ready to be formed into loaves and put in the oven and baked. By this parable, Jesus taught how a small amount of the spirit can influence a person's whole life. 
just as a small amount of leaven can cause the entire batch of dough to be raised. The spirit of Jesus carried on by the person who receives it, it can make a good man and good deeds. An evil spirit can make an entire life sinful. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, see, these are the parables of Jesus. These parables are stories and lessons. Jews often preach by telling his listeners stories called parables. Each of the parables had a lesson or a moral, and sometimes Jesus would explain to his listeners that the lesson was in what the lesson was. In other cases, Jesus did not explain, leaving it to the listeners to understand the hidden meaning. On the following pages are told many of the parables of Jesus with explanations of the meaning. The parable of the sower. Jesus was at the Sea of Galilee. On a sloping shore, a great number of people were gathered to hear him preach. They crowded upon him so closely that he entered a boat while his listeners stood on the shore. He taught them with parables. The first parable was about a farmer who went out to sow seeds. Some of the seeds fell by the wayside and were trodden underfoot in a hard-beaten path, and the birds came and ate them. Others fell on rocky ground where there was little earth. They began to grow, but when the hot sun parched the ground, they were scorched because they had no roots and no moisture, and they withered away. Other seeds fell among weeds, and weeds grew and choked them. Other seeds fell into good ground and grew and yielded fine crops. Jesus then said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, meaning that people should give attention when truth was being spoken. Afterward, Jesus explained this parable to his disciples. He told them that the seed is the word of God. The ground is the minds and hearts of the people who hear the word. Those who hear God's word without caring to understand it are like the seed sown by the wayside. Those who hear God's word without making it the rule of their lives are like the seeds that fell in the rocky ground. The seed, the word of God, is all right but their hearts are not right. The pleasures of the world crowd out the truth as the seeds sown among the weeds are choked. But everyone who hears the word of God with an honest and good heart and who lives every day as that which the word teaches will thrive and like the seed sown in good ground. The sower and his enemy. Jesus then told another parable to show how good and evil people are in the world together but how each will at last receive what is due for his good or evil deeds. The owner had plowed his field and had sown good seed of wheat. When he lay down to sleep, for all he could do was patiently await God's blessing of rain and sun to bring harvest. But during the night, the wicked man sowed a bad seed among the wheat. In a short time, both grew up the bad seed or seeds along with the wheat. The owner's servants asked him if they should not immediately pull up the tears before they gain their full growth. The owner replied that they must not do this. If they pull up the tears, the wheat would be injured. Both were to be allowed to grow until harvest time. Then the reapers would be 
told to gather up the tears first and bind them in bundles and pile them up in a heap and burn them. After this, the wheat could be gathered into the barn. This parable also, this parable also Jesus afterward explained to his disciples, he said, that the field is the world. The good seed or wheat represents God's dutiful children. The tears are wicked people. The enemy who sowed the bad seed is Satan. At the end of the world would come the harvest. When the angels of God would separate the bad from the good and the good would be taken to live with God in heaven forever. In this life, God's people often have much trouble and for a time, everything seems dark to them. But Jesus said that at last, the righteous would be happy in the kingdom of God. The hidden treasure, another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure in a field which a man found and hid. And in his joy, he sells everything he has and buys that field. These words form the whole of the parable as Jesus spoke it. He did not explain it to the disciples, but it's not difficult to understand. In olden times, there were no banks, and when men had more silver or gold than they needed, they buried it in the ground. Any treasure found in a field belonged to anyone who might have bought the field. The man who found the treasure was in haste to buy the field and sold everything he had in the world to obtain it. Jesus taught by this parable that we can give up everything of the world's pleasures for the sake of the hidden treasure of the kingdom of heaven. The pearl of great price. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking precious pearls. Having found one pearl of great price, he sold all that he had and bought it. This is the whole of another parable that Jesus spoke. It is like the parable of the hidden treasure. It's similar. In those days, pearls cost more than any other jewels. Jesus compared his precious truth to pearls, like the man in the other parable. The merchant sold all that he had to buy the precious pearl. This parable taught that all else is worth giving up for the sake of his truth. Jesus then told of a net that was cast into the sea. When it was filled, the fishermen drew the net upon the beach and kept the fish that were good, but cast away such fish as were not good enough to eat. By this parable, Jesus told that in the end of the world, the angels of God would forever separate wicked people from those who were righteous. The king and his servants. Peter came to Jesus one day with a serious question. With serious question, with a serious question. Perhaps he had been disturbed by some unkindness showed him by his townsmen. He said, "Lord, how often can a person sin against me and I forgive him?" Seven times. The answer of Jesus came at once, not seven times, but seventy times seven. To make it clear, Jesus told the parable of a certain king who called on his servants to pay him what they owed him. One of these servants owed the king a very large sum of money and had no means of making payment. As the king had the right to do under the laws where he lived, he commanded that the man be sold into slavery with his wife and children. 
The servant bowed to the king and said, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. The king was so sorry for him that he let him go free and forgave the debt. But this, but this very man, is that my other line? Ay, ay, ay. I gotta fix this. I don't know. Am I still, am I just re- reading? Can you guys hear me? Huh? I already getting hung up, but what's that? Uh, this. Can you hear me? Yeah. No, Mom, I'm, I'm taping. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading. Oh, boy. Yeah, one of my lines disconnected. I hear you. Oh, okay. Well, thank goodness thought you didn't mm-hmm. disconnect. Mm-hmm. I'm still on that. Oh, okay. All right. Ooh, oh, Texas, that's you, Camille? I'm Michelle. Uh, okay, Michelle, okay. Okay. Um, I, Texas, is that Camille? All right. All right, my other line, free conferencing. Yeah, that, that one messed up. Let me try and get that back. One, eight, five, seven. I need a link in case. In order to enter your conference using the backup number, you will need the conference okay. dial in number in the X. I don't know how that thing drops. This right. service is provided by free conference. Okay. Access code accepted. This conference is being recorded. Please announce yourselves. All right, as long as I got back in. All right, so we're looking at um, Jesus' parable, the king and his servant. So the servant bowed to the king and said, Lord, have patience with me, uh, and I will pay you everything. The king was so sorry for him that he let him go free and forgave the debt. But this very man who had been forgiven so much showed no mercy toward a fellow servant who owed him a small son. Can you imagine? To this man, he said harshly, pay me what you owe me. The man pleaded for mercy and said, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he was not forgiven and he was put into prison. When this was told to the king, the king had the hard-hearted man brought before him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave your debt. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the king made the man pay all that was due. Jesus added, this is what my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive everyone. Mm. Okay. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Seeking to test Jesus, a lawyer came to him with some hard questions. He asked, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied to him, what is written in the law? The lawyer answered in words from one of the books of Moses. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered right. Then the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? 
Jesus answered his question by telling him a parable. A certain man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going the same way, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, when he came along and saw the man, was moved with pity. He stopped and bound up the bound up the man's wounds and set the man set the man on his on his own set the man on his own beast and took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next morning, the Samaritan took out money and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of this man, and if it costs more, I will pay it when I come this way again. Jesus then answered, which of these three was the neighbor of the man who was robbed? The lawyer promptly replied, the one that showed mercy to him. The Jews believed that none but their own people were to be regarded as neighbors and that they had a right to hate all others as enemies. And so they hated the Samaritans. By this parable, Jesus showed the lawyer that anyone can be regarded as a neighbor. Then Jesus said, Okay, just um, one more read. The parable of the unfruited, unfruitful tree. Jesus was teaching that men should turn away from sin and serve God. He told a story to make this clear. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he looked for fruit on it and found none. And he said, for three years I have looked for fruit on the fig tree, and I found none. Cut down the tree. Why should we waste space for it? Jesus showed by this that everyone who lives ought to be useful. Like a tree that bears good fruit every year in the proper season for fruit bearing, if no good fruit comes of our lives, we are like dead trees which are in the way of others that might be fruitful. Jesus continued the story by telling of the mercy of the man in charge of the vineyard who asked for one more year of effort for the tree, during which he would loosen the soil about it and in other ways help it to grow. The owner said, very well, it is then... Very well, if it then bears fruit, but if not, you must cut it down. This taught that God is patient and gives us every opportunity to, to do his will, but if we will not heed his voice, he must leave us unsaved. Mm. Okay, those are some of um, the parables. Um the parables of Jesus, and uh, there are quite a few more, and maybe I'll, I'll read some more another time. Uh, the parables are found in the Bible. Let me give you the chapter. Um, the Bible storybooks, so they don't exactly parables, but they are parables of Jesus. They are located. Um, and there are 46 parables. 
um, and they give them in, in chronological order here. Yeah, wow. Mm. All right. Uh, they should be parable, my parables of Jesus. Scriptures. Wow, 46. I didn't even know that were that many. Um, let's see. We have a chart. Matthew, most of them, Matthew and, um, oh boy, I'd have to look them up. They're in the basically, how was the sower? Yeah, Matthew and uh, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Matthew, John. Oh, here it is. Great. This is what I wanted, the chart. All right. This, the parable, the mustard seed is Matthew 13. That's the parable of the mustard seed. The treasure is Matthew 13, 44. Um, did I do the fishing net? Matthew 13, 47. The growing wheat, Mark 4. Uh, Oh, you guys, the neighbors, this is Luke 10, 30 to 37. whole bunch of parables. Um, yeah, the servant's role is Luke 17, 7. The loan money, Matthew 25, 14, 30. So basically, your parables are Matthew and Luke. Yeah. And they're the parables of Jesus. And they're learning with stories with a learning lesson. We'll do a few more, um, perhaps, uh, on our next. Uh, let's listen to this one here. The most misunderstood parable, Luke 10, 30 to 31. Why is this the most misunderstood parable? Parables are familiar to many people, but not always correctly understood. And one such parable, the one to which I draw your attention this morning, Luke 10, verse 30, and the very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. Very familiar to Christians and non-Christians alike. In fact, uh, we all know what it means when you call someone a Good Samaritan. Uh, That's a compliment. That generally means that someone shows kindness, mercy, compassion, care to some other person in need. And uh, that's good. That's uh, virtuous. God is honored by that. But that being said, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan is largely misunderstood. People are familiar with the story, but not so familiar with the point of the story. And to some degree, we expect that because... The truth of our Lord's parable is hidden. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus says to his followers, at this very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, 
Well, this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And then in verse 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and didn't see them, and to hear the things which you hear and didn't hear them. And then he goes into an occasion in which he teaches this familiar parable. Parables are really the most direct connection with our Lord revealing truth to his disciples and hiding it from his rejectors. This parable, therefore, will be misunderstood by non-believers. It will be flattened out into a simple story of showing kindness and of expect that. For believers, it should be clearly understood. We have ears to hear and eyes to see, but we do need a little help along the way, I think. For example, if you go back in church history, you get some very bizarre interpretations of this story in allegorical form. And if you follow church history through the intervening years to the present time, you get more misrepresentations of the story. And even today, it has become a very, very popular story in defending uh, the church's interest in social justice, forms of socialism, even Marxism, lean on the story of the Good Samaritan. So listen to the story starting in verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own animal, his own beast, and brought him to an inn to care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Pretty simple story. Easy to understand. We even get the punchline, who's the neighbor? The man who helped the sufferer. But going back, for example, to the early church fathers, you have strange uh, allegories developed around this story as if it had a secret hidden meaning. For example, one of the early writers by the name of Origen said, here's the interpretation of the story. The man is Adam. Jerusalem is paradise. Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers, demonic forces. The priest is the law. The Levites, the Levite is the prophets. The Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The animal is the Lord's body. The inn is the church. And the Samaritan's return is the second coming. That is bizarre, mildly, and has nothing to do with the point. In fact, it was John Calvin who said that misses entirely our Lord's intention when he was exposed to Origen's notion about the Good Samaritan. And while this is not an allegory, because there are no allegories in the Scripture, there is nothing that has some kind of secret hidden meaning that must be mystically discerned, 
more modern interpreters have missed the point of this as well. Any time you get into discussions with people who talk about poverty and the alleviation of poverty and the reallocation of wealth and taxing the wealthy to provide for the poor and social justice and all forms of socialism, you will find somewhere in their emphasis the story of the Good Samaritan, that somebody cared for people, divesting himself of what he possessed for the sake of someone else. For example, the Sojourners organization says this, you only have so many days to embrace someone to tell him how you feel. Forty-ten million in our country are on food stamps and benefits are decreasing. We need to reflect on Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. So according to them, Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan is about helping people who have less than we do. Another one of the uh, social justice advocates puts it this way, quote, getting to know people on the other side of the road so as to tear down the walls between us is essential. Jim Wallace, a very familiar advocate of this, says the Good Samaritan is a problem. It seems to promote short-term aid without addressing long-term justice. For example, what were the social conditions that led the man to abuse the wounded man, and was it a predictable outcome of a deeper societal illness? Yeah. He says the Good Samaritan later inspired to engage the dilemma through advocacy. The Good Samaritan is open-ended, leaving us an assortment of questions in relation to the preservation of social justice. What would happen if the Good Samaritan went down the road daily and began to critique the political and economic agendas of those in power in that area? Further, he says, we need to dig out the root causes of injustice that made the man steal. May we create a world where in 500 years, Sunday school classes are bewildered by this story because violence never happens and Good Samaritans are needed no more. Excuse me. I, I believe in compassion and care, and I believe in meeting the needs of poor people, but that has absolutely nothing to do with story. But again, I, I'm not surprised that it's misunderstood because Jesus said they're only available to those who have eyes to see. Another advocate of this kind of interpretation said, we need to transform the Jericho Road. So the whole community is free from harm. Liberation theology says this is about the all-inclusive reach of solidarity. Most of us wouldn't get so caught up in forms of uh, social justice as that. Uh, we would just say it's, uh, it's about helping people that are suffering. It's about being kind. And certainly God requires us to be kind. God establishes that in his word, to be sacrificially kind. But remind yourself of this. All parables are salvation story. This is a salvation story. In fact, this is Jesus doing personal evangelism. This is Jesus doing personal evangelism on a particular man standing in front of him. All stories, all parables, there are 40 of them or so, all of them are about salvation in one form or another and they are profound and they are theological and they are doctrinal and they are presentations of propositional truth that is hidden from those who have no ears to hear 
but revealed to those to whom it is explained. They are riddles if not explained. Jesus, in the text of the New Testament, explains many of them. For those that aren't explained specifically, when you begin to hear the explanations of some of them, you have enough information to explain the ones that he doesn't specifically explain. And by the time you get the whole of Scripture and the New Testament, we know enough soteriology, truth about salvation, to interpret them for ourselves. But they are salvation stories. This is a scene of personal evangelism. It is parallel to Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. It is parallel to Jesus and the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Jesus doing personal evangelism. So let's set the scene. Go back to verse 25. This is what establishes the intent of the parable. A lawyer stood up, pulled out of the crowd, came before Jesus, took his position in front of him, for the purpose of putting him to the test. This tells us his motive was not good. He wasn't seeking truth. He wasn't seeking information. He was doing what all these religious scribes and lawyers did. He was trying to trap Jesus so they could condemn him and find reason to have him executed. He was part of the religious establishment. He was um, a lawyer, not in a civil sense. He was a lawyer, not in a criminal sense. He was a lawyer in the sense of scripture. He was a expert of the Old Testament law. So he stands up, and like he always did, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, put Jesus to a test, hoping he will fail. And he asks him the same question the rich young ruler asked him. He asked him the same question that Nicodemus had on his heart. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is the path to heaven? What is the path to a right relationship to God that's going to guarantee that I'm going to live forever in the presence of God? That is a very important question. That is the most important question any person ever asked. That is the right question. That is the right question asked to exactly the right person who is himself eternal life, the very life giver. But he didn't ask it for any legitimate intention. He asked it to put Jesus in some kind of bad light and put him on the horns of some dilemma that would allow Jesus to become embarrassed and even more than that, uh, to become ashamed and therefore be guilty of some crime. So he says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice the path that Jesus takes. He said to him, what is written in the law? Uh, how does it read to you? What does the law say? Let's go back to the word of God. You have the Old Testament. What does it say? Well, this is, a, this is a sharp scholar. This is a scholar of Old Testament scripture. And he gives exactly the right answer in verse 27 about what does the law say? How does it read? He combines two scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and Leviticus 19, 18, two familiar scriptures. They are two scriptures that sum up the entire law of God. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, these are the two things that sum up the law of God. All the law of God is summed up in these two things. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says in Matthew 22, and these is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. The first half of the Ten Commandments deal with loving God. The second half of the Ten Commandments deal with loving others. This is the summation of that. 
all the rest of the law either has to do with your relationship to God or your relationship to people. So it gathers up the whole law. And what does the Old Testament require? Perfect love to God, perfect love to men. Loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, all faculties, all capacities, and loving your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. He said that's the right answer. Verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. So go do it. You want eternal life? Fulfill the law. Okay, why is he telling him that? Well, where's the gospel here? Why doesn't he just say, believe in me, believe in me? Because there's another issue to be confronted here, and that is how the man views himself. There's no good news unless the man accepts the bad news, right? Well, this man doesn't have any interest in a true evaluation of his condition. Verse 29 makes it clear. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I mean, he is so self-righteous, so self-justifying, that he doesn't even think about how he loves God or how he loves man. All he thinks about is maybe you've got a different definition of neighbor. The only thing I need to work on is maybe you've got a different spin on who's my neighbor. He is oblivious to his true condition. He is hostile to the notion that he is not righteous, that he is not justified that he does not already have eternal life, that he is not right with God. He loves God. He keeps the karyat shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He does keep Leviticus 19, 18. He loves his neighbor. But, oh, wait a minute here. Who is his neighbor? Well, we know that from Matthew 5. Jesus said, the rabbis have taught you, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. So enemies weren't included. The Old Testament actually says, very clearly, love your stranger in your midst. Love the stranger in your midst. That was required from the Old Testament. They did not love their enemies. They did not love the strangers. Furthermore, they didn't even love other Jews. All all they loved was the people who were part of their very narrow, elite group. They loved other Pharisees, (laughs) other scribes. How in the world would you justify that? Well, they justified it in, in one sense, and perhaps they had many justifications, but one with which I'm familiar is that they parked on... Psalm 139, 21 and 22. This was virtue to them. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. So they had turned hatred of the enemies of God into a virtue in which they justified themselves for rejecting people in their own world, in their own society. In Exodus 23, The Old Testament required that if an ox fell in a ditch or an animal fell in the ditch, you show compassion on the animal. They were a long way from 
from caring for people. They, they were so self-righteous that they had turned hating other people, enemies, strangers, and Jews who weren't part of the elite religious core. They had declassified them as neighbor. So that's why the mocking statement, well, um, who's my neighbor? I'm gonna have to, you're going to have to show me a different, different definition of neighbor, which means that he had passed the test of loving God perfectly, and he had passed the test of loving who he believed were neighbors perfectly. This is a man who will not come to a real understanding of his condition. He thinks he loves God perfectly the way God requires him to. He thinks he loves the people he's supposed to love, the ones that God expects him to love perfectly. I'm okay with God. I'm okay with people. I'm fine justifying himself. All he says is in a mocking tone, maybe you better tell me who my neighbor is. This is a lost man. This is a doomed man. This is just another one of many religious people that Jesus encounters in his life who think they can earn eternal life by their virtue, by their morality, by their religion, by their emotional connections to God. Now, Jesus could have left him sitting there or standing there. He could have walked away, left him in his self-righteous pride, never said another word. But instead, Jesus engages in, in an act of evangelistic compassion with this man, and he gives to this lawyer one more powerful insight. The purpose of this story is to crush this guy's self-righteousness. It is really a wake-up call that he is damned and doomed. The story is to shatter his pride, to shatter his imaginary spirituality. It's a crushing, unforgettable work of conviction. And by the way, you may feel self-righteous when you encounter the priest who went on the other side of the road and and the Levite on the other side of the road, but I hate to tell you this, but in condemning them, you condemn yourself. And I condemn myself. Because you're going to have to be honest enough to see yourself in those people. Because that's how we behave most of the time. Most of the time. On the surface, it seems like a simple story about kindness. It is anything but a simple story about kindness. So let's look at it. Verse 30. Jesus replies to this man who is justifying himself. Now, what are you going to do if you're talking to somebody and you're going to evangelize them and give them a message of the gospel, and they are self-righteous because they're religious, because they go to church, because they were baptized, because they love God, because they know about Jesus, because they do religious work, they maintain a level of morality. How are you going to approach them? How do you break through? Well, it's a popular thing today to throw out some Ten Commandments and say, do you violate this commandment and do you violate this and violate this? I know that there's a lot of that. Jesus doesn't do that. He has a, he has a, Uh, a far more devastating approach than just isolating commandments, Uh, although that is a legitimate way to do it. Jesus steps that up a great deal. How am I going to get this guy to realize he's lost? Okay, that's the point. That's where you start in evangelism, isn't it? How do do I get him lost before I can get him saved? Well, Jesus replies to this man who is self-justifying. It says, a man was going down from... Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among robbers, 
and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. That's that's a very short version of what happened, but that's all there is. He made up a story, made up a simple story. Jerusalem is is um, three thousand feet up. Uh, Jericho is one thousand feet, say, below sea level. You got a, a long down road. It's only 17 miles, so you're going down fairly radically. It's a severe winding road in ancient times. It still is a very windy road. It's a road that scares people when they go on boat tours if they're driving it at night because the edges are precipices that go way down into these huge, deep, uh, foreboding canyons. It's filled with dramatic drops and rocks providing ideal hideouts for robbers. It's a scary place and um, a very familiar one. History notes that for centuries after the New Testament time, it, it was a highway that literally featured robbers, highwaymen, bandits, favorite site, history tells us, of Arab robbers. Going down, you would have to go to the Pass of Adumim, mentioned in Joshua 18, the Pass of Adumim. Adumim is a form of the Hebrew word blood, blood pass. Uh, it was a place of death, and it was a place of bloodshed. So it's a very dramatic story to see this man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho on this road that was very familiar to everybody in ancient times. Fell among robbers, a group of highwaymen pounced on the man. They didn't just rob him. They stripped him, beat him, went, leaving him half dead. Just out of nowhere, they hit him took everything he had and putting the clothes on his back. He's left probably with undergarments, and that is it. Every possession he had in his sack that he must have been carrying as they did on a journey, even the clothes that he was wearing, they took. They beat him. It's a constant verb. They kept on beating him. They kept beating him until he was virtually on the bridge of death. Critical condition. Now, he is in a desperate situation. He needs help. He can't help himself. He can't move. He, he can't lift himself out of that condition. And this would create drama because um, one could say, well, maybe no one's going to come by. Maybe when someone will be gone, what's going to happen? So Jesus immediately says, by when a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Well, at first, that sounds good. As soon as the as soon as the lawyer hears a priest coming by, maybe he had a little bit of hope. A priest was somebody like the lawyer, knew the Old Testament, knew you were to show kindness, knew you were to minister to strangers. Leviticus 19.34, the same chapter that says, love your neighbor, says, love the stranger as yourself. Psalm 37, 21, the righteous is generous and gives. Proverbs talks mercy. There's that really wonderful passage in the prophet Micah in chapter 6, where Micah says in verse... What shall I bring to bow myself? Lord on high, shall I come with burnt offerings, yearling calves? That's what priests did. They, was that enough? Was that good enough? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present 
my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What does the Lord want? Does he want animals? Does he want like the, like the worshipers of Baal? Does he want my son burned on the altar? No. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love, kindness. Walk humbly with your God. He knew that passage. I mean, theoretically, you would say that's what a priest would do because a priest would know that. Oh, here comes the priest. And um, this should provide a little hope in the story as the lawyer listens, but the priest passes on the other side. Very strong language. He uses the Greek term anti. It means he goes against, completely opposite the other side, the complete ignoring of this man, complete indifference. He shuns him, and he's lying there in critical condition. So the priest has zero love, right? Mm-hmm. Zero love for the man and zero love for God, right? Because if he loved God, what would he do? He would obey, love the stranger, love the neighbor, show mercy, kindness. So here is a priest who's a typical priest in the Jewish system who is self-justified and seems to be righteous to those around him, but doesn't love God or others. At this juncture in the story, it's, it's really kind of interesting to see what commentators do. Some commentators say, well, he didn't go across the road because he didn't want to touch the corpse and become unclean. Some say he didn't want to go over there because he would be uh, defiled and he had to go back to the temple later. Some say he didn't go over there because he thought the robbers might be lurking around over there and they might get him. Some say he didn't go over there because um, he realized that the man was in the condition he was in because he had the judgment of God on him and he was beaten because he was sinful and he wanted to make sure he paid for his sins. Guess what? He didn't have any thoughts like that because he didn't exist. This is a story. He didn't exist. After paragraphs and paragraphs of reading this, I'm saying... This is complete fantasy. The guy doesn't exist. He had no reason, no motive, no excuse. He had no thoughts. He was not. Point is simple. You would expect a priest who represents God and represents the people to God to love God enough to do what God said and love people enough to do what they needed. He didn't love God. He didn't love others. He is, in a sense, a representation of that kind of self-righteous system. That kind of self-righteous system. Was that an indictment of priests in general? Uh, You know, there probably were some exceptions. There may have been some priests that, that actually, if that had actually happened, might have cared for the man. We don't know that. But this would be a, a kind of generic attitude of priests in that religious system. They hated people for the very reasons that I just gave you that the commentators bring up. And then Jesus says a Levite came also in verse 32. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side from the tribe of Levi, son of Jacob, but not the family of Aaron. So not the priestly family, but the Levites still from the tribe of Levi assisted in the temple. When the The priests did all their work. They needed assistants and helpers. They were kind of at the bottom of the priestly hierarchy. 
they worked on the liturgy, policing the temple, taking care of things there, facilities and things like that. Well, this is a religious man. This is a, this is a man connected to the priesthood, connected to religion at its most intimate point. We would expect him to come over and help, but he doesn't love God either, and nor does he love men. If he loved God, he would do what God says. He would love his neighbor as himself. If he loved his neighbor as himself, he would care for the neighbor. So he doesn't love God or his neighbor. So we've just met a couple of people who don't have eternal life because they don't love the Lord their God and they don't love their neighbor. Will anyone do what's right? Will anyone show love? Verse 33. And this is the shock. This is the shock. Our Lord has just indicted the Jewish religious establishment in the story. And now he introduces a hated person, a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. The very existence of Samaritans was seen as an evil. They, they were a, a pariah. They, they were a blight on the world. They, they were evil all the way back to the sins of Jeroboam. They, they, were, they were evil because they intermarried with the Gentiles when the northern kingdom was occupied. They were evil because they tried to disrupt the rebuilding of the, of the Jewish city and the temple when they came back from the captivity. They were so evil that the Jews in 128 BC even attacked and destroyed their temple. They're half-breed freighters. In fact, if you wanted to say something bad about someone, you called them a Samaritan. How do I know that? John 8:48. The Jews said to Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The worst that you could possibly come up with would be to call somebody a demon-possessed Samaritan. Shocking. Their worst near enemy, despised outcast, no access to the temple, no access to worship, no access to sacrifice, no access to God. And he does the right thing. When he saw him, he felt compassion. There he is. Was this man in the kingdom of God, one commentator asked. Again, I say, he didn't exist. It's irrelevant. What's the point? Two men representing the Jewish establishment who thought they loved God and loved others as themselves had absolutely no love. The system is bankrupt. These people trying to justify themselves are lying and they are deceived. Two men were religious and failed to meet the requirement for eternal life. They didn't love their neighbor. They didn't love strangers. They didn't love enemies. But this one man who is an outcast, this invention of Jesus, demonstrates at least for that moment the quality of loving your neighbor as yourself. He takes center stage in the story, and this is just really shocking to the one who is listening. Because what the Samaritan does is so extensive. He came to him, verse 34. He came to the man, must have knelt down, analyzed, evaluated, 
assess, diagnose his condition, his need, careful attention to everything, then bandaged up his wounds since the man's clothes had been stripped off him and probably taken away in, in the plunder. They, he may have had to shred some of his own clothes to wrap the man's wounds, stop the bleeding of this man. Then he took the oil and wine with which people always travel for preparation of their meals and um, poured on him. The word for poured there is a very rich word. It, it has to do with a kind of lavish pouring compounded by a preposition at the beginning. So he just pours out oil and wine, uh, soothing as well as an antiseptic. Then he puts him on his own animal. That guy can't walk, so he picks him up and puts him on his own animal. The term here uh, for an animal means any kind of beast of burden, very very likely uh, a donkey or something like that, katenos in, in the Greek. So he lifts him up and places him on his animal and brought him to an inn. Brought him to an inn. Inn is the word pan dokane. Pan means all. It's place for all. Uh, this is not like you would think of the Holiday Inn or any other kind of inn that you would stay in. This is a rough, tough roadside lodging, uh, a brutally uh, sparse. Um, you would only you would only want to be there if it were an emergency that got you in from some danger or because you just couldn't go any further. The man not only took him to the inn, but he stayed with him. He took him in the inn, put him down to rest, stayed at his side all night doing whatever he needed done, provided food for the man, provided comfort, water, cleansing, all night. You say, well, how do you know he stayed all night? Because the next verse, verse 35, Jesus says on the next day, this, this is really amazing care for an enemy. Uh, a really a, a, a violent kind of enemy. All night vigil. Then the next day, he takes out two denarii. Now, that's a day's wage. And just to let you know uh, how much um, you had to pay for an inn, um, not too long after this, there's some literature that has indicated that a board was found, some kind of a signboard, from an inn in a city in the Roman Empire. And the nightly cost was one thirty-second of a denarius. One thirty-second of a denarius would mean that the man, for two denarii, could do the math, stay for two months. Two months? Again, what is the point? The point is this, is this is lavish. This is lavish. He's, this, is, this is the ultimate attention that could possibly be given. You go over there, you check him out, you tear your own clothes, you bind up his wounds, you pour oil and wine as an antiseptic and soothe him, perhaps rubbing his wounds and bruises, you put him on your animal, you take him to the inn, you provide for him to stay for two months in the inn, you stay overnight with him, and as if that's not enough, what do you do? You say to the innkeeper, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, there's a formula for extortion. What? And you're telling an innkeeper, whatever you want to spend on the guy, Spend on the guy, and I'll pay you when I come back. This is lavish love. That's the whole point of this. 
This is lavish love. Amazing generosity for a complete stranger to one who is his enemy, who is hated by him. But that's, what's our Lord saying here? This is loving your neighbor as you love. That's what you do for you, wouldn't you? Of course you would. Have you ever done that for anybody else? Do you do that for everybody else in that condition? You know, the people who think that by giving money to poor people, they have enacted social justice and fulfilled the principle here, really should look at it again because they would be condemned by it. If you think sending some money somewhere, if you think buying a few meals for somebody is what this is, you miss the point. That's not wrong to do, but don't put yourself in this parable. Who does this? Who does this? Say, well, I know somebody who did it once. That's not good enough. Once isn't good enough. Ten times isn't good enough. If you want eternal life, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, all the time, and love your neighbor as yourself all the time. Who does that? Nobody. Not you, not me. An open end. Whatever you want to do, do it, and I'll pay it when I return. This is love without limit. Love without boundaries. That's the whole point. He exposed himself, of course, to be extorted. But such is the nature of his love. This is what he would do for himself. So the good Samaritan loves the man as he loved himself. We do that all the time. You probably can't even think of a time in your life when you do that. That's that's reserved for you. And maybe your wife and kids. Is this your constant life pattern? The people who do social justice work and think they're fulfilling this need to look at it again. Because unless you do that all the time, perfectly and love God all the time perfectly you're not going to have eternal life if you're coming by way of the law look we make sure we get the best attention have our needs met get the best doctors the best care the best resources we do that for ourselves but this is a simple story of lavish limitless love by a person for somebody who was an enemy, he didn't even know. So Jesus asked the question in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, the Lord has just changed the question. The question in verse 29, who is my neighbor? You're going to define neighbor for me now? Are you going to mess with this neighbor idea? I'm doing fine loving God perfectly, doing fine loving my neighbor perfectly, by my definition, unless you're going to redefine neighbor, he says mocking. Jesus says in verse 36, this isn't about who your neighbor is. This is about are you a neighbor? It's not who is my neighbor, who qualified to be loved, but it's about Am I a neighbor who loves in an unqualified way? Deeply, the point comes to the heart. Forget trying to decide 
who qualifies for you to love them and demonstrate love that knows no qualification. Everyone in your path, everyone in your path, everyone in your path all the time we need is to be loved, loved lavishly, loved sacrificially, loved generously, loved tenderly, loved limitlessly, loved kindly, loved as long as the need exists, every person, even if that person is your enemy. Who loves like that? Well, the man answered the question. The one who proved to be a neighbor was the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus sticks the knife in. Go do the same. You go love like that, and you can have eternal life. Huh. What should have been his response? I've never loved anybody like that. I've never loved the people in my little narrow confines of who I'm supposed to love because I think they're my neighbor like that. I only love me like that. I've never loved anybody like that, let alone everybody like that. At that point, the knife goes in, the conviction is laid upon the man, and there's a blank space in your Bible between that verse and the next one. The next words are, now as they were traveling along. Hmm. You say, is that kind of an odd way to do evangelism? There's no sense in telling people the good news if they won't accept the bad news about their condition. And if you want to evangelize someone, you you get the picture at the highest level you can. The, The issue is, do you love like that? Because if you love God perfectly, then you obey perfectly, and God says to love like that, the way you love yourself. We all have to say, I don't love like that. I can't love like that. I can't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. And I certainly don't love everybody around me in need the way I love myself. And if he had said, I I can't, forgive me. Maybe this could have been a wonderful story if all of a sudden, like the Luke 18 story, he had fallen down and pounded his breast and said what? Lord, be merciful to me, what? Sinner. I can't love like that. Neither can you, neither can I. We need forgiveness. We need mercy. We need grace. And that's why I read Romans earlier in chapter 3. No man is justified by the law, the keeping of the law. Here's the law summarized and you can't do it. How are we justified? By faith in Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins and through his sacrifice, has paid in full our debt to God so that he can be just and still make us his own children and declare us righteous. Yeah, it's just too simple to say this is a story about going to the other side of the road and hugging somebody on food stamps. This is about salvation. You want eternal life? You know what God requires, perfection, loving him perfectly and loving others as you love yourself. You don't do that. You can't do that. You need mercy. You need forgiveness. You need grace. That's why Paul in Romans 7.10 says, when I saw the law, it killed me. It slew me. And there he was standing in front of the one person in the world who could forgive him. And he never asked. Never asked, as far as we know. Social justice, that's not the issue here. Righteousness is the issue. 
before God. There was Jesus, the personification of heavenly mercy and forgiveness, ready to give it lavishly to that lawyer if the man would simply admit his wretched condition. That's the message. It's a message to you as well. You need to come for mercy and grace. Then, when you're saved, it's amazing how he sheds abroad his love in your heart and you begin to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not perfectly, but that becomes the direction of your affection. And you begin to love other people as you love yourself. Not perfectly, but that's the direction. This story is not to make people feel guilty about not giving their money to poor people. It's not to make people feel guilty about not taking care of those that are suffering. This story is designed to make people feel guilty for not loving God perfectly and loving others perfectly and then running to the one who alone can provide forgiveness for that sin and eternal life. Let's pray. We gratefully, Lord, we ask you to fill our hearts with gratitude for the wonderful privilege of the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, righteousness, judgment, that led us to recognize the bankruptcy of our own condition before you. It's so much harder for religious people to see their spiritual bankruptcy it's it's one thing to see the sin in your sin, but it's something else to see the sin in your self-righteousness. Mm. Thank you for leading us to that conviction so that the gospel came as good news, great news, glorious news of forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ. Father, we ask that you would draw to yourself sinners and give them the gift of eternal life. We pray Christ's great name. Amen. Amen. Oh, wow. Interesting. I just wanted to hear his perspective on parables. And um, they are parables, but they have uh, great, great worth, great learning. And, um, yeah, Jesus had quite a few parables here. And we'll take a look at um, a few of them. Occasionally, um, yeah, they're in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. All right. Um, welcome, Camille. Glad to have you. I don't know if you guys are still up. Oh, I lost. I lost Nancy. Camille, you want to close us in prayer, darling? Okay. Yeah, Camille. Yes. Hi. I just wanted to make sure you see me. You're coming in very low. Very low? Yeah. Oh, can you hear me now? Much better. Okay, sorry about that. I didn't have a thing to my ear. I mean, to my mouth, so. All right. Uh, Dearly beloved Father, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I come before you. And uh, I thank you uh, just for who you are. And uh, I just uh, pray um, for your hand to be upon each and every one of us. 
and that we allow ourselves to be led and guided by you and the Holy Spirit in everything that we do, um, that we um, that we just living our lives for you and for your kingdom. Uh, I just pray for uh, just for the end of this program that we're currently going through, this targeted program, Father. And I just pray that uh, as we live for you more and more as we grow, um, that, you know, just the hands, the backs, and, you know, this program is broken. And um, that all of this income blacklisting, all of this, um, you know, all of this that we endure in terms of being part of this targeted individual program, that it would be dismantled and destroyed. And I do believe that it will. It's just it's your timing, Father. And I pray that uh, while we wait on you and that we are living for you and... Uh, that we come closer to you, have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and, uh, you know, just grow and just uh, just really follow that, uh, you know, whatever needs to be cleaned up in our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies, and our lives, that we do it. And, um, I give you the honor, the worship, the praise, and the glory. No, you will do it. I just pray that uh, that I just continue to be faithful while I wait on you, and that I live for you. That I get closer to you, Father. And I pray that for each and every one of us here. I pray for those of us as targeted individuals that uh, those who choose to be atheist or you know just are upset. Um, and how could this happen? that we understand that you are the mighty sovereign. You are a mighty God. You have reason and, uh, for everything, and that we are to trust you, even with, when our, with our human mind we don't understand. Father, you are greater than our situations and circumstances, and you are faithful. That we all need to be faithful no matter what is going on in our lives, you know, and just to trust you that, uh, Father, you will come through for us, uh, but that we just rely on you, that we live our lives for the Messiah. And I thank you, honor you, worship you, and I praise you. And uh, I just continue to pray, uh, Father, that, that you just uh, continue to be with us as we move forward in this life. And um, I thank you so much. Um, I thank you for who you are. Um, I pray for each and every one of our families, our friends, our loved ones, everyone connected to us, Father. And I just pray that we just continue to move forward uh, no matter what, that we don't allow ourselves to be held back, that we are steadfast in your
your word, in terms of seeking guidance, that we live our lives wisely, Father, to and for Jesus and for you and your kingdom. We just continue to grow. Um, I am so grateful to you for all that uh, you have done. Um, I just pray for a heart of humility always. Thank you for it in advance, Father. And, uh, you know, I'm just faithful. Uh, I remain faithful. I know the victory is near, and I thank you for that. I pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, dear. Thank you for the encouragement and um, being faithful. But this is not an easy walk, girl. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. It, it, it's definitely, you know, some days are better than others, you know. But um, yeah. And it's sad that somebody could just turn your life upside down like this. But oh, I know. Mm-hmm. God allowed, you know, it's the reason. This is spiritual. We got to, <laughs> it didn't happen at, <laughs> it's, he chose us to be the ones in the front line for a reason. Because yeah. this program is being expanded to regular, you know, people. So look at it as the chosen one and thank God we were able to do research and knowledge and don't go stretch out these arms to go get further and not to really to have them fully take control and uh, kill us. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. You so know, it's I, interesting. I, I can't even go on my cell phone and call into this call anymore because they keep knocking me off the call. Wow. I can't use my cell phone at all because I kept so what, what you using the home, you What you using the home phone? Yeah, this is the phone that I basically use for uh, work, you know, which I'm grateful that I have this. But, you know, this is my work phone. But, you know, I I need to use something in terms of, because I like being on and uh, you know, being part so, of this. So when you, when you call in uh, um, on the cell phone, what happens? Um, well, there are times when I call in on the cell phone and they won't even let the call go through. Mm-hmm. Um, now when I go through on the cell phone, it'll let me through, but then, um, you know, I'll hear you for a little while. And then all of a sudden, it's almost yeah, like... Drop you. Yeah, you did drop well, it'll drop me. First, I'll just hear this silence. And, you know, that now that I know what that means, I know that means I'm about to be dropped. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, and that didn't start happening until maybe a few calls ago. 
So, you know, uh, they it's like they are really coming hard and really fast and furious in every way, you know, even at work. Um, well, first, they're in my computer big time. And uh, what they've started to do, especially uh, from the last, Time, you know, when I started working, I started accumulating them all those minutes and doing so well. Uh, mm-hmm. Somehow they did something. They got into my computer. Uh, mm-hmm. They first they put that Windows update on my system, which I couldn't get around. And um, now they're in my oh, system. Uh, uh, updates, forget it. The update. I mean. An update did my computer in, and I, I got a Mac. Right. But I thank God, you know, Mac, They, I called them. I was like, wait a minute. I put this update in here, and, uh, you know, and right. they, they they worked with me till we got that thing. Right. If, you, if that Windows update isn't good, you have to call Windows or Microsoft Word, whoever's, whoever's update that is. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and and put a stop to them automatically. I don't want any automatic updates. Uh huh. Well, the thing is, I put something on the system saying I don't want any automatic updates. But because, see, what they do. I mean, I have some idea of what this means, and you know, I don't know how much you know about computers, but. They get in at the root of your system, like through the NetBIOS, okay? And when they do that, no matter what you tell the computer to do, they basically gain access and control over it. So, for instance, you can say to the system, I don't want any automatic updates. But since they have control over the system, because they're basically at the root of the system, in your system, it'll happen anyway because they've mm-hmm. already taken control over it. So you could say to them, I don't want any automatic updates. But once someone has control of your system, they have control over what happens in terms of what updates go through. And see, the fact of the matter is those updates that are in them, they may not even necessarily be of Microsoft. But because they have the ability to go in the system, they can put in in there like it is for Microsoft and update that system. I mean, they basically what happens is you. I turn on my computer; they have control. I mean, the fact of the matter is they shouldn't be able to do anything because um, I don't even have Wi-Fi access. You know, I turned off my Wi-Fi. I called Time Warner Cable. So, you know, I don't have any access. I should not have any access to Wi-Fi. Oh, so when you turned off Wi-Fi, would you have hard Internet? Hard Internet. That's right. Well, that's what I requested is hard Internet, and that's what I am supposed to have. But somehow... Since they're able to go into my system, they enabled access to Wi-Fi anyway. So they're overriding because they have access to my system 
whatever I tell the computer I want it to do. Well, let me just say, if you're making decent money, girl, buy yourself another computer just to, you know, you know, as to shock the Zoom. Right. Yeah, as a, right. Yeah, well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and I, if, if you have the money, uh, a credit card, try and get a Mac. Those seem pretty safe. Uh, I've done, I, I was doing like the PCs, I was doing at least every two years a new one or one and a half year. It was just ridiculous. So I have like three or four in here because I had to always have a backup. And the Mac so far, so good. Yeah. Well, you know what? Excuse me. Sorry. Um, I would, you know, what I need to do because many of the work from home positions. Excuse me. I don't know why I started sneezing all of a sudden. But many of the work at home positions, um, they require a PC and not a Mac. So unless I'm able, you know, if I can find oh, they, one. They do? Yeah. Oh, Many of them, they want you to have PC. And, uh, oh, no, P- oh, they want you to have PC or Mac? <sighs> PC. Oh, really? They don't like the Mac? Many of many of them don't. For some reason, oh, they tend to be more PC uh, Windows. You know, many of them will even say, we want you to have Windows 10. But most will accept Windows 7 or Windows 8. So, um but many of them do want PC. But, you know, Uh PC, you're right, though. I think PC is more vulnerable and uh, much more easy to manipulate. But you know what? They can manipulate anything because whether it's a PC or Mac, once they're able to get into the NetBIOS, basically the root of your system, they can take control of all of it, you know, Um but I don't think it's a bad idea. The only thing is, like you said, money in terms of having a backup. Yeah. But you know what? The thing is, it's about just trusting God, too, because, um, you know, again, this is not a flesh and blood battle. This is a spiritual battle. And, um, you know, getting another PC, they can, you know, I mean... It's just going into war and into prayer and, you know, seeking God and asking him, okay, God, what do I do now? Um, Praying and, you know, hopefully we can continue doing the fasting on Tuesday. Definitely. uh, Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's something. I mean, they've basically been able to get into my system and control the flow of calls coming through. You know, and, you know, to really just shut things down in terms of the momentum that I had at work. And, uh, you know, it's amazing, like you say, the lengths that they're willing to go through. I mean, it is ridiculous. Um, So, you know, it's just, um, just trusting the Father. And, uh, you know, it, I just don't want to be negative. I know it's it's definitely a very challenging situation, but I just look at it like this as well. God has brought me through this far, and I'm not going to 
panic or not trust him now. I mean, I've been in this program almost nine years now, you know, uh, and he's somehow, I I don't know, I I just look to the bottom, like you. I've got four years knowing you, yeah. Yeah, so he's brought me through. I don't understand even how, I mean, I think sometimes I should have been gone a long time ago, so I know God is real, you know. I mean, and like, as I've said before, for the most part, I've been doing uh, this by myself, you know, and I don't mean by myself because God has been there, but, I mean, I haven't had the help of you know, other I mean, people. family, friends, with us, yeah. I mean... <laughs> So, I mean, there's no way I could have ever done this in my own strength. There's someone greater than me who's fighting for me. Actually, you know, when they, like I said, it first started, it was um, me and a few sisters. I mean, it's just hard to grip that this is happening. And that's what we had to do. We had to sweep that on this, this, um, Thank God for the internet because uh, we could just listen to tapes 24-7. T.D. Jakes, Manpower, just to stay strong. And I don't think I could have made it any other way. Well, they wouldn't even let us work at all. No home job, nothing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, for a while, I didn't even have any kind of work. I mean, and the reason why, as I stated, that I started working from home, because I was blacklisted from working, going outside to work. And you know what? I I think to a certain degree, maybe that working outside of my home, maybe that had dried up, because when I worked outside my home, even before I knew this is what was happening to me, I would be workplace mobbed, mobbed in the workplace. So, Thank you. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh. Yes. Uh-huh. But I didn't have any idea that this was happening to me. I worked for a Department of Corrections, and they put me in a, I, I was a canteen manager, and they put me in a warehouse outside of the prison with no uh, security and these inmates that were killers and they were putting oh. poison in my food out there, and they were I didn't have any uh, way to get to the bathroom. They were doing all kinds of stuff to me. But anyhow, uh, God somehow allowed me to medically retire. And when I got up out of there, I thought, okay, I'm free. But when I got up out of there, then I thought workers' comp was following me for four years. It wasn't until just November of 2017 that I realized that this was game-stopping. I didn't know. And then that's when it all started to become fruition. Everything started to happen. I started seeing all these people in the store when I used to see maybe one or, or two. And I started seeing the mobbing and the crowding and then the electronic harassment and and now the neighbors, and it's just like, to me, it's like a dream. And I'm trying to tell my family, and they don't want to listen. They don't believe me. My children don't believe me. They think, I'm, they think I've lost it. No, I said, no. You know, my, my you know what? Being, uh-huh. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let me let you finish. You, I was going to say, you just, you have to, my, 
stay in prayer because believe me, it will happen to one. It's going to happen to other people. Well, and you know, my husband, my husband, he didn't believe me. And I was going out and I'm like, I have my grandchildren with me. And I said, look, look, I said, these people are really, really following me. My grandchildren would see it. I would come home and tell my husband. And he was like, you know, this is getting to be too much until they started harassing him. Now they are, yeah. Now they're harassing my husband. You know, they they are messing with his the goal would be to break up that marriage. They don't like marriage. Yeah. They don't like the yeah. support system. See, if if your income's gone, you could depend on his. If his income gone, he could depend on you. They don't like support systems. Absolutely. And then, you know, I have the, the, the children, the foster children, and they targeting each one of my foster children. It's just so sad. Those are too easy to target because they're on the medical system. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one yeah. lady just told me how, um, you know, she had to force the child from, from birth. And when he, they targeted him so bad, as soon as he hit 16, they had that boy become a transgender. She, oh, she got him at birth at John. Now he's Juanita. Wait a minute, and that's what's going on with one of mine right now. Yeah, they put and him in a program. He's attacking his brother, trying to make his brother have sex with sex with him. This is all news. Oh, no. oh my gosh. And oh, my then my 15-year-old, she was throwing up all crazy tonight. And I'm like, I don't even know where it came from. Yeah. 15 years. She's probably Ooh. pregnant with a girl. <laughs> She no, she's always home. I'm, oh, she's always around me. But she's she probably got, pregnant. That don't mean she ain't. You know, she she still got a little. <laughs> you know, vomiting is you know. But yeah, the 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 um foster children, children, they are doing some horrific human research experimentation, yeah. and it's with wow. the homosexual agenda. Um, the lady uh that has this foster care boy that she had since. Bert did almost, and now he's uh, 19. They got him. They have a program from them where they'll never be a misfit because they get the, they funnel in easy money for them to do the transgender to give them the boobs, titties, as their boys. You know, excuse me if I'm being blunt, but they will give the boys the breast. But then they will. Then they'll tell them there's no operation for downstairs. So you literally have a young man running around with with uh, and a penis. Girl, right, now, right. is that boy not set up to be isolated for the rest of his life? Not only isolated, he will get killed. You let that fool go dress up like a woman out here and some mm-hmm. man actually like him and go there and find out he has a penis. They are setting mm-hmm. up those foster children to be killed. Oh, my God, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And at 19 years old, do you really think they can know the difference? I mean, do they really know the magnitude? You have titties, and this this system made you feel that you can look like a girl. Do you know somebody will kill you? They find out you have a penis down here? Uh Uh They set these children up for death. Yeah. Yeah. Force the children. They definitely targeted them for that that, that transgender. I feel so bad for them because I'm like, you know, that is such exploitation. And 19, first of all, you don't make no decision like that at 15 years old. And then they give them the free money for a partial operation. 
And the partial mm-hmm. operation is to keep them right in the state of isolation. Mm-hmm. Right, if you can right. give them the money for the breast, then you're supposed to have the money for the downstairs. Well, you know what? The fact is you have people now, I mean, it's just become so accepted. I think a few months ago there was a young, well, really, I guess a young, I still say young boy who decided he is a she, a woman. I think the the boy is like, I don't know, nine or ten years old, who now is saying that 